0: Welcome to Lakeside. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And I am super glad that you're here. If I've never met you, I'd love to meet you out in the lobby. Uh, Maybe it's your first time in a long time. Fantastic. We're glad that you are here. And wouldn't it be great, like the song says, if life could be simple? You know what I'm saying? Because life is complicated. Anybody have a complicated relationship these days? I mean, if it's the person next to you, don't stare at them. Just slowly look away. You know, I mean, because relationships are complicated. Or how about, how about your finances? How about that? My, my buddy, Mike Klockenbrink, he leads this thing here called Financial Peace University. And those containers sit on his desk filled with cut up credit cards because people want to uncomplicate their life. And so they getting free from this debt that they're in finances, or or what about your job or your career, or maybe it's your lack of job or your lack of career these days, not to mention raising kids or our health issues or our mental health issues. Ah, Life is complicated. And I think that's why Jesus, when he stood in front of the crowds in his day, and their lives were complicated, and they're kind of hanging by a thread, he says to him, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto unto you. He's talking about these things. He's talking about these necessities of life. And then he says, don't worry about tomorrow. He says, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. I kind of like that. And I, I almost wonder if he was like getting a little bit intense at the, like, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. And tomorrow's over here going, yeah, I got to worry about tomorrow, but just you wait because I'm coming. Tomorrow's coming. And you know tomorrow's coming, right? You know what's going on in your life. Let tomorrow, tomorrow worry about tomorrow. He says, each day has enough trouble of its own. And some of you are saying amen to that these days. Eugene Peterson, who wrote a version of the Bible called The Message, I like the way he says it. He says, give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come along when the time comes. You see, I love that because... Authentic Christian spirituality and the story that we see emerging from the scriptures that we've been given doesn't skirt the issue. It hits the complications and the difficulties and the contradictions of life head-on And not only that, but the God who is like over the story and the God who's in charge of the story and in control of the story, he actually enters into the story. He enters into this world that we live in and takes on human form and experiences all of that just like we do. And so the God that is over the world is also the God that enters into the world. And the God that enters into the world is the God that overcomes the world because he loves the world. And some of you might be sitting there today and going, well, how, how does he overcome the world? I mean, I don't, I don't really get this because when I look out my window, things are chaotic. Things are out of control. I mean, all I have to do is wake up and open my eyes and my family's a bit out of control and chaotic. How does he overcome the world? We're going to celebrate that when Easter comes. But here's the deal. It's super simple and super complicated. Because it's as simple as saying, for God so loved the world. He overcomes with love. But here's the complication. How do we work that out? I mean, how do we work out this kind of love with those others in our lives, those people that we struggle with, those people across the street or over there or next door or whatever it might be? How do we work out the love that is supposed to go through us and bring peace and joy and justice the world? How do we work that out? And, and beyond that, I mean, if we're really being honest, how do we work out God's love for us? I mean, I struggle with that sometimes. Like, God, you really love me, and I know how bent out of shape I can be. You, How do I really like embrace that? This is part of the difficulty. And so Jesus sat with his closest followers, and he's getting ready to go to the cross, and they know he's going to go to the cross, and they're getting getting sad, they're getting grieved because Jesus won't stop telling them, I'm going to go to the cross. And he says, I'm telling you all this so that you can have peace, so that you can have peace in this chaotic world. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart or have courage or be encouraged because I have overcome the world. And so there's this very Real sense that the overcoming has been accomplished, but there 's this very real sense, and the scriptures show that that we haven 't experienced it fully yet and so if we, if we were sitting around and getting really nerdy with like theological words, I would say I would say this is inaugurated eschatology and inaugurated it, it it's started it 's moving there 's this, there's this thing that 's been accomplished, and there 's this victory that 's been won, and we can bank on that and in ancient Hebrew culture, they had no idea that that was going to happen. They, they figured it's all going to just happen at once. It's not going to happen in the middle of history. It's going to happen at the end of history. And here comes Jesus right in the middle. And he says, I'm accomplishing something. And then eschatology. So the, this, this idea of end times and, and what, what's God doing in the last days. And we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. It's like, let's go, Lord. What are you doing here? But, but it's, it's already started. And so theologians will talk about the already, not yet, and this tension that we live in. And you feel the tension, right? You feel this tension that we live in. Because we live in a world that's deeply divided. And in a country, and sometimes in a family, that's deeply divided. And I know that it's always been this way, but but in my adult lifetime, it just feels like maybe, maybe it's a little bit more these days than normal. And so we have these gulfs of ideological perspectives and political perspectives and theological and philosophical perspectives. There's, this, there's these divisions down social and ethnic and racial and economic lines. I was walking with a friend of mine a few years ago. In fact, I just got off the phone with her. She's, she lives in Kenya, and she does humanitarian work there on a small scale, but on a beautiful scale. And I, I'm walking down the streets of Iburu, Kenya, and I'm sitting in the makeshift houses these phenomenal, beautiful people that she works with. And it's complicated. This young man right here in the brown shirt, his name's Kamal, he's having surgery this month. And my friend Kara's home for a month on furlough, and when she gets back, she wants him to still be there. And it's complicated. So when we come to the scriptures, and when we come to an ancient story that's written for people on the other side of the globe in a different time, with different customs, with different world views. It's good to know that it's also for us, and there's something here for us, because just like us, they were human. And so we come face to face with people like Jonah, and we're in the middle of a series, and we're right in the middle now of a five-week series in the book of Jonah, and we see things shining through, and sometimes it sort of acts like a mirror, and we go, is that me, and we're on this journey where we start to see the character of God more clearly and we start to see maybe Jonah and this character and what he's all about more clearly and, and then we sort of see ourselves and we realize that Jonah faced a complicated world as well. And so if you have your Bible, will you open to Jonah chapter 1? And if you don't have your Bible, you can pull up uh, the scripture on the Bible app, the YouVersion app. We use it every single week here at Lakeside. If you want a physical copy of the scriptures, we got some out on the tables out there. You can grab that. I think Jonah starts on page 515 or something like that. So grab the scriptures, and we're going to jump into a beautiful passage. It's chapter 2, but it really starts at the very end of chapter 1 in verse 17. And it says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And so we're gonna hear this prayer. And we're gonna hear sort of the private thoughts of Jonah and what was going on. It's like reading his private journal. And we get to kind of hear as he's sinking down in this scene what's going on in his mind and heart. He says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in. But you, O oh Lord my God, brought, me, brought my life up out of the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And this section ends by saying, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry, dry, dry ground. I love that. <laughs> you know, very graphic. Very graphic. And so John has done a great job over the last couple weeks of sort of unpacking the kind of literature that we're reading, this story and genre and all that. And that's super important to remember because if we're reading a particular type of literature but we don't know it, then we can very easily miss the whole point of the story. And we can get caught up on all these tangents. Some people call it moralizing or sermonizing or just like making up whatever we want from the story. And so it's, in, it's important that we embrace the way that this was intentionally written to its original audience. And so we've learned that this story is satire. It's in the narrative form. It's, it's almost like, it's a little bit, bit like some of the parables that Jesus told in his day. Satire, the whole point of it, is to sort of hit you upside the head. I mean, satire hurts and it's meant to sort of surprise you like hit you on the blind side if you're if you're like a football player you don't know it's coming and it hurts and the truth hurts sometimes and so we're kind of cruising along in life and then it just hits us and that's what happened to Jesus not that all his parables were satire but he would tell these stories and the religious leaders at the time they would go wait a minute we need to arrest this guy no wait a minute we need to kill this guy I mean he's talking about us this isn't right And they were shocked. And so satire delivers the truth in a surprising, painful, and shocking way. And this is what we're reading here. But there's a twist. There's a little turn. Because now we've gone from this sort of narrative style right into a poem. It's like this is a beautiful poem, and it kind of just, it's easy to read, it's fantastic, it it seems, uh, you know, very pietistic and and all of that, and and very religious language in there. It's almost like one of the psalms that we read from the book of Psalms, you know, those 150 psalms that are in in the Old Testament, And, and we don't have the whole story around those psalms, we got the story around this one. And most likely, so the, you know, I, I don't think Jonah's like in the belly of the whale and he's hammering out, you know, chiseling out or he's writing out on a scroll or whatever. And, and, and maybe it's, a, it's all just a story. It's a parable. It's metaphorical. We don't know. And that's been fantastic. We've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. By the way, if you haven't been with us, go back and watch those messages so that you sort of can feel where we're at in this journey. Somebody wrote this later on and they're reflecting back and there's this song that they put into it. There's this beautiful poem that they put into it. And here's the catch. We can't, we can't, we can't be led astray by that because it's really easy to get sucked in to this psalm that is so beautiful. And forget that we're still reading a satirical story. So poetry, but still satire. So let's go back and look at this. Let, let's just start in verse 2 and kind of unpack this and see if we can glean a little bit, like, what's really going on here? Because maybe there's more to this than meets the eye. It says in verse 2, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And So, so, so far it's, it's straightforward. In the Hebrew, it literally says, from the billy of Sheol, that's where he's crying out to. I'm sinking down to the place of the dead in the Hebrew mind and their theology that Sheol was the place where everybody went it was to be cut off from God. The righteous and the unrighteous is like this holding tank. It's, it's really weird, but, but when you went there, it's like there's this separation between you and God. And so Jonah senses himself going to this place where he's completely cut off from God. Jonah's sinking down, and he's saying, I'm dead. I'm dying. Actually, some of the old rabbis think he actually did physically die, the ones that believe it's a literal story, like it's a death and resurrection story, and this is why Jesus talks about it as a sign later on. That's a whole other conversation. But we, we sense this drowning from Jonah. And then we go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know who we're talking about. You're the guy that wanted to die. No, you have a death wish, Jonah, because you talked about it in chapter 1 and twice in chapter 4, and I'm not giving anything away because John's already told this, that Jonah is saying, I'd rather die. Just kill me now, God. It's like, Jonah, why the death wish? What is going on with this character that it's gotten this bad for him Look in verse 2, this kind of continues on, and Jonah kind of is crying out, and he says, you hurled me into the depths. Who's he talking to? He's talking to God. Who's he saying hurled him into the depths, into the sea? He's saying, God, you hurled me into this. I'm here because of you, man. Well, wait a minute. Okay, we remember chapter 1, who hurled Jonah into the sea? It wasn't God. It was the sailors. And why did they do it? They didn't want to do it. They fought Jonah every step of the way. Jonah wanted to get thrown into the sea. Do you ever get do you ever get stuck playing the blame game in your life? Has that ever happened to you? You know the blame game? It's, it's, it's a treadmill. It's like that rat on that spinning wheel. And, and, and it's really easy to play. Sometimes we just play it sort of innocently in short bursts, like, oh, that's not my fault. It's your fault. Or that wouldn't have happened. Or I wouldn't have said that if you didn't do this. And, and it's sort of this blame thing. But it's actually a lane that we can get into, and we can play it day after day. Year after year. And it's not that people haven't hurt you, they have. And it's not that they shouldn't ask for forgiveness and make things right because they should. But the reality of the blame game is that it will always hurt the blamer most in the end. And you know, people that are old and sour and full of bitterness. See, God's not in the business of blaming, He's in the business of loving, and forgiving. And he wants us to be free from that. And so Jonah is drowning here and he's in bondage and he's kind of clinging to this really beautiful, poetic language, this religious language, and he's, he's, he's sinking down. And it sort of reminds me of this, of this thing that Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day. He was quoting the, the old prophet Isaiah. And he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, oh, their hearts are far from me. And we start to see what's really going on in Jonah's heart and his mind start to shine through. As he's sinking down, he's still angry. He's still frustrated. He's still clutching to his viewpoint on things. And he's pointing the finger and he's blaming God. Jesus had a word for that, and he used it over and over and over in Matthew 23 about the religious leaders. He called them hypocrites. And this hypocrisy seems to continue with Jonah in verse 4. Jonah says, I've been banished from your sight. Like, I'm cut off. I'm done. I'm sinking down. I'm going to the place of the dead. But who banished Jonah from God's sight? How did the story go? Jonah ran from God, right? God pursues Jonah. He cares for Jonah. He provides for Jonah. He shows mercy to Jonah. God didn't banish Jonah. Nobody else banished Jonah. Jonah banished Jonah from God's sight. God continues to show mercy over and over again. Jonah didn't deserve God's mercy, but he shows it anyway. The sailors didn't deserve God's mercy, but he shows it anyway. The Ninevites certainly didn't deserve God's mercy, but he shows it anyway. We have a generous God. And that's one of the things that's meant to shine through from this story in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this contradiction going on. And we wonder what's really happening here The goodness of God, the generosity of God, the the, the mercy of God, his love is shining through all of it and all of the messiness of humanity. And we can't miss that. We We have to catch that. He's a generous God. The next few verses take us deeper into the heart and mind of this sort of complex character named Jonah. He's sinking down further. He's entangled. He's literally being imprisoned. He's, his, his life is ebbing away, and, and then he remembers God. And so he's sinking down. And here, here's why life is so darn complicated, right here. Life is so complicated because we are so. Complicated. I mean, I don't know whether to believe Jonah or not. What's really happening in him? I mean, I have this history of the story. I know where things are going in the story. I see his character. He's sinking down. He's saying these beautiful words. It's like he's clutching on to dear life. It's like which Jonah is the true Jonah here? And see, here's the thing about good and bad. It's, uh, you know, about holiness and and, and evilness and, and all these things. It's not like it's an us and them thing. Like those people over there. Like, they're all messed up, and us people over here, like, we got it all fixed, and we know what it's really about. See, the line between good and evil doesn't run between us and them. It runs right down the middle of every single person. And we see this battle going on in Jonah, and he's losing it, second by second, because we see this downward spiral. I mean, on the one hand, Jonah, it seems like he's, he's just pouring out his heart, right? I mean, he's being honest, he's being real, he's being vulnerable, he's being open. Isn't that what we want people to do? Like, come on, be real, man, be yourself. Like, let's, let's sit and have coffee and, and just get honest. But at the same time, we see him just spiraling out. In fact, the author uses this idea of direction and, and downward direction. He goes down to Joppa, he goes down to the ship, he goes down to Tarshish and away from the Lord. He's gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, down to the depths, down to the roots of the mountains, and he feels like this is the end. The earth beneath has barred me, has jailed me in. He's at the end of the rope, and he cries out. And so on the one hand, it's beautiful. On the other hand, I don't know what to make of it. It's almost like the author of the story is baiting us in. You ever watch a movie like that where, where it's like the author is just sort of dragging you this way and then you kind of get hit up the side of the head. It, it's like when I, 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 did a, I did a paper in seminary on the movie Crash, 2006, best picture of the year, phenomenal picture, and you just sort of, you know, you go with the storyteller, then all of a sudden the camera turns on the audience, it turns on you. And it shows you something that is probably down in higher or, or up here. And we get a clear picture of ourself. It's shocking. And I sort of feel like that's what's going on here. Because out of the blue, verse 8 happens. And I don't know where verse 8 comes from. I don't even understand why it's there. It's like clunk right in the middle of this beautiful psalm. Verse 8 says, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. It's like, God, help me. Uh, God, I'm in the seas. I, you threw me in the seas. And, and, and he's sort of feeling sorry for himself. And then out of the blue, <clears throat> the prophet Jonah, you know, the Hebrew guy. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Like, I'm a Hebrew, and it's a very puffed-up statement. It's like, those who cling to idols, they run away from God's love for them. And I have to ask, well, what idol worshipers are you talking about, Jonah? Are you talking about the pagans on the ship, the ones that threw you in? You mean the ones that sacrificed to Yahweh? The ones that made vows to Yahweh? The ones that prayed to Yahweh? The ones that hoped that Yahweh would have compassion on them? You talking about those idol worshipers? Oh, maybe you're talking about the Ninevites. Again, I'm not giving anything away because John's already talked about it. We'll see that the Ninevites... Turn away from their evil ways and they humble themselves and they pray. They put on these potato sacks, you know, the sackcloth and ashes in this very cultural way of saying, We're sorry, we didn't get it right. They fast and they pray and they just hope that God would have mercy on them, that he would show compassion on them. You talking about those idol worshippers? Are you talking about yourself? Like like you, you sort of were an idol worshiper, you're running away from God? I don't think he's talking about himself. He's a prophet of Israel. He would never identify himself with an idol worshiper. So I don't know, man. I mean, again, we're reading satire, and we see this guy clutching for his life. And as he's sinking down, it just seems like he's playing this religious game, like he's saying everything that he's supposed to say, and he knows the words, and and he he knows what, what he's supposed to do, and he's saying it all, but his heart is sinking down. Do you ever do that? you know inside your life is ebbing away but on the outside you keep going to bible study and you keep going to church you keep singing the songs you keep saying what you're supposed to say because you know what you're supposed to believe you know how it's supposed to work but on the inside oh man things have gotten rotten in there there's been a struggle in there there's a tension there's a battle going on so it's not easy to watch this this is actually really painful to watch here's this leader here's this prophet Here's this person who, who knows the heart of God. He understands the heart of God. And he's just collapsing right in front of us. I think Jonah's facing something that at some point in life, we all face. At some point in life, I think if we're honest, and if we don't let the noise of life drown it out, at some point in life we look at our experience and we look at our reality and then we look at our beliefs and our faith and there are some times in life where we can't reconcile the two the old theologians called it theodicy, the difficulty of life and pain and contradiction and struggle there's a good God and a holy God there's a God that's in control of things and yet my life is in chaos. It's the why, why, why. Job struggled with it in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes is about this in the Hebrew Scriptures. How do I reconcile my beliefs and my experience, my reality and my faith? It just doesn't make sense. I'm at the end of my rope here. And Jonah's at the end of his rope, but to really kind of get a grasp on this, we sort of have to take off our 21st century lenses for just a minute, and we have to put on our kind of 8th century BC, I'm a prophet in Israel lenses. Because Jonah is in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. There's been a civil war. And so already he's away from the temple. He's away from Jerusalem. He wishes he's down here, but he's up here. And he speaks to the people of God. And he speaks for God. That's his whole idea. But there's these other people. And at that time, they're the most brutal warriors in that slice of history at that time. And they come in and they sweep in. They're, They're the ancient Assyrians. And they were masters of pain and death. Like many other cultures throughout history, they they knew how to conquer people. They knew what to do with their enemies, and so there's tribal warfare, and it's touch and go, and dead bodies are being left everywhere, and then there's an escape. But they're coming, and they're coming big time, and everybody knows it. In fact, at the time that this was probably written, they're looking back on this. But the setting is Jeroboam II, and so if that's true, then it's only 20 to 40 years, and the Assyrians will come in and wipe out the northern kingdom. Ten out of the twelve tribes, never to be heard from again. Many of them are slaughtered, some go into captivity, some just go out in other parts of the world, but it's, it's gone. So here's Jonah. He's a prophet. He lives on the promises of God. It's been passed down to him. He looks back to the promises of God. You know, the, the early ones, like with Abraham... And with Moses, where, where God says, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God and I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to make you a great nation. And the other nations that bless you, I'll bless them. But if they curse you, I'll curse them. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And so Jonah's going, wait a minute, how do I hold these beliefs in my brain, but this is my reality and you're asking me to go and bless those people and help save those people that are going to wipe us out? I'm out. I'm out of that, man. Here's the thing, God. If those promises are a sham, then you're a sham. And if you're a sham, my life's a sham. And if my life's a sham, I just want to die. And now we're getting in touch with the death wish of Jonah. And what Jonah's going through here is something that some call deconstruction. Some call it losing your faith, some calling it having everything unravel. And if we're honest, we face those kinds of questions as well. But here's the thing, God's not afraid of any of that. One of the authors I like to read talks about it like a series of three boxes. And and, and the three boxes work on a lot of different levels. Uh, the, The first box represents sort of an early version of you. You know, where, where you kind of um, have this life that you've built and this container that you've built in life, and you're starting to fill the container with things and, and viewpoints and, 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 and perspectives and faith and, and practices and, and all these different things, and it's, it's great. The first box is great, and you've kind of built your life. But at some point in your life, you hit a wall, just like I hit walls in my life, and that wall takes you into the second box, and the second box... It's old, and it's tattered, and it's rusty, and there's, you can tell there's been struggle in this box. The second box is where those earlier answers, while, while there may be a lot of truth there, not everything seems to make sense. And you start to look back and you start to wonder and you start to question. And, and, and you're like, man, I, I, I wish I could get um, out of that first box because there's got to be something better, but I don't know anything different. And so now you're in the second box and things are unraveling and your life is deconstructing. It's painful, it's ugly, it's awkward, it's scary. And so then we sort of have this choice. We're in this second box and we're struggling. And there's a third box too. The third box is beautiful. It's the new you, it's a new version of you, it's a more mature you, it's a stronger you, but it's a you with scars because you've been through that second box. And so what happens is when we're, when we're in the second box, or maybe sometimes we're straddling, it's like we're in the first box, but okay, the second box is really painful, but I'm going to go back here. And so we like to retreat to that first box because it's safe, and I know the answers, and I can say all of the real spiritual things and use the spiritual language. If God brought me to it, then he'll bring me through it, you know, let go and let God. And I'm not saying that those things don't have truth on one level, and so, so don't misunderstand me, but... There's only so many things that still work when we're in that first box because God wants us to grow and to change and to become the person that he meant us to be. And so we move into that second box, and we move into the third box, and and, and in a very real sense, when we first trust Jesus, we go through those boxes. It's like this is why Paul could say, "Put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed day by day by day." It's why Paul could say, "I've been crucified with Christ." The second box is taking up your cross. It's, It's it's the death. That's why it's so brutal. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The I, the ego, right here, it doesn't longer live. The first person doesn't any longer live. And the life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's what the old theologians used to call sanctification, the setting apart for mission, for purpose, for holiness. And not just holiness with an H, if you, just, if you just limit it to that, man, it's, it, your, your religion will turn into moralism really quick. Yes, you get all that, but it's holiness with a W. It's being whole. It's being who God meant for you to be. And so we go through that in various ways initially, but here's the thing I've realized is that I go through it again and again over the long haul. And we can fight against the wall That second box, we can stay in it forever. And here's the thing with Jonah, we don't know what happens to him. There's tension at the end of the book, and we'll get to that when we get to that. We just don't know. But we do know this, that that God rescues him. Even in the midst of all of that deconstruction and falling apart and messy religious hypocrisy, God reaches down and he shows his mercy and the beautiful thing about this poem, because Jonah will say a bunch of stuff in verse 9 too, but, but the beautiful way that this ends is God provides. So God provides and then he commands. And so this poem is a chiastic poem. It's, it, it, it's like a V, like a sideways V and it starts here and it ends down here. And the whole point of that is that it's surrounded by the beginning and ending and we have God's provision and his command. God is surrounding this whole messy process that Jonah's coming through and we can't miss that. We have to say, oh wait, that's for me. God's surrounding this whole messy process that I'm in right now. And the fish barfs Jonah up on dry land. I love that. It's, it's almost like, man, you don't even taste good, Jonah. You, you, you need to get out there and get with God because you don't taste good down here, man. And he, he gets this opportunity to begin to walk again. So we're left with a bit of tension, but we're left with this idea of God's heart, that he's there, he's surrounding He's holding, He's loving, He's caring for each of us in this struggle that we go through, this struggle of growth, this struggle of trust, this struggle to understand what's happening in my life these days. And at the end, what shines through is that God is a gracious and compassionate God, that God is slow to anger, He's abounding in love. And if you miss everything else from the book of Jonah in these five weeks, don't miss that. Hold on to that. And we'll hold on to it together. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your love for us. You're a good, good, good God. And Lord, I'm thankful for your amazing love, but I'm also thankful for your power. In your power, you have the ability to give us new life. You give us new life out of the, the shards and the debris and the ashes of where we've been. And so, God, we commit that to you. We open our hands today and we say, Lord, here's our lives, man. And you, you like, take them and and work with them and mold them and, and shape them. And may we have the courage, may we be instilled with your courage to keep going through that second box and into the third. To know that you love us from beginning to end, no matter what. We pray in your name. Amen.